0: This episode of Widow Deck is brought to you by Tonga Hut, serving classic cocktails in North Hollywood since 1958.
1: Attention, all passengers! This is your cruise director. Welcome to the Pacific Princess. We're about to set sail for adventure, new romance, and love. But first, come on up to the Lido Deck with your crew. John Champion, Bill Smith, and Dan Davidson. Bon voyage.
0: Welcome to the premiere episode of Lido Deck, a love boat podcast. I'm your captain, John Champion. I'm your purser, Bill Smith.
2: And I'm your ship's doctor, Dan Davidson. Today's episode, where it all began for TV viewers, The Captain and the Lady, One If by Land, and Centerfold.
0: Well, guys, it's been a long time coming, but as we've discussed on Mission Log and gentlemen, with our mutual love for 1970s TV, this show was inevitable. Now, we'll be picking apart the episode soon, examining it for morals, meanings, and messages, but Dan, why don't you tell us what's in store for listeners of Deck?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. The Love Boat ran for 10 seasons uh, from 1977 to 1987 for a total of 248 episodes. Uh, We hope to be the definitive podcast looking at every guest star, every port-a-call, and every delicious cocktail that Isaac can serve. Uh,
1: That doesn't even count the TV movies or the reboot, Love Boat, The Next Wave. Right, Bill? That's right, Dan. It's also worth mentioning that at our rate of one episode per week, this cruise should take just under five years. And along the journey, we want to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website, LidoDeckPodcast.com, and of course on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash LidoDeckPod. We would love to hear from you and your thoughts on the show and maybe even your stories of romance at sea. We'll have John Champion's trivia in just a moment after a word from our sponsor.
2: This week's show is brought to you by Tonga Hut. Hey, guys, what's your favorite tiki cocktail? Navy Grog, Mai Tai, Scorpion Bowl, Zombie... Bill, uh, you don't even have to say Shirley Temple anymore because you can have a big boy beverage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know, I'm a classic mai tai man myself. Um, you know, all, all the way back from Trader Vic's or um a, a place like that, you know, I really I go for the classics for sure.
1: Wow, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> I um I would have to go with a navy grog, you know, with my family's history with uh, some some navy and marines in there, I, a grog sounds very hearty, matey.
2: Well, I'm a margarita guy, so just as simple mm. as that. Perfect. You know, Isaac may not be mixing drinks for you guys right now, but you can still escape to the tropics in the oldest, continually operational tiki bar in Los Angeles, the Tonga Hut, located on Victory Boulevard in North Hollywood. You know, there are places with fruity cocktails, and there are places with fountains and vaguely Polynesian decor, but Tonga Hut is one of the only authentic experiences that remain. And it just got even better because Tonga Hut has opened an outpost for all those thirsty desert dwellers over in Palm Springs. You know, if you have an iron constitution, you may want to join the loyal order of the drooling bastard. Your mission? To drink every one of the 78 cocktails within a calendar year, to have a plaque with your name put on the wall, and earn the loyal order of the drooling bastard bastard pendant which i am on a mission to complete you can find out more plus read their amazing cocktail menu over at tongahut.com
0: all right gentlemen so without any further ado if you don't mind i'm going to jump into trivia for today's episode All right. uh, The whole thing starts with Geraldine Saunders. She was the first female cruise director in the industry working for Princess, and she wrote a book called Love Boats. Now, that inspired producer Douglas Kramer to develop a TV movie, and ultimately, the legendary Aaron Spelling brought the concept to series. What we have today is a Love Boat format of three intertwining stories written and directed by different teams. The Captain and the Lady it was written by Michael Norrell and directed by Stuart Margola. And Michael went on to do 12 more episodes, then came back for Love Boat, The Next Wave. Stuart Margolin, worked quite prolifically as an actor and director, appearing on The Monkees, MASH, The Rockford Files. He appeared in and directed Beggars and Choosers. That was a a fun show that was, I, I believe it was on Showtime in the late 90s, early 2000s. He was a regular on Love American Style and also directed an episode of that show. And by the way, Love American Style is a kind of anthology, kind of light romantic series that inspired Love boat. Uh One If By Land was written by Paula A. Roth. Uh, she worked on Happy Days, with Vernon Shirley, Joni Loves Chachi. So, you know, all the Chachi series. And uh Judy Skelton, uh, she was the co-writer, and then it was directed by Alan Rathkin, veteran director, also worked on Love American Style, the Bob Newhart show, Mary Tyler Moore, so there's your tie-in to Gavin McLeod. And he also worked on It's Gary Shandling's Show. Finally, Centerfold was written by Jay Grossman and directed by Richard Kennan. Today's episode premiered in September 1977. Now, it is technically the first full regular episode of The Love Boat, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention that it is the fourth installment of The Love Boat. There were TV movies in September 1976 and January 1977 with different casts. The pilot for this series titled The New Love Boat, the one that we all know and love, starring the cast we're familiar with, was aired in May of 1977. Now, sadly, there have not been commercial home video releases of the first two TV movies. We are hoping that with the success of this show, we can petition to have those movies finally released in the special editions they deserve. The third pilot movie is a special feature on the second volume of the season one DVD set. Now, let's talk about the ship. People who hear me on Mission Log know that I'm kind of a ship fanatic, There were different ships used in the location shooting between the different pilots and multiple seasons. There was the Island Princess, but the most famous of the ships used was the Pacific Princess. Pacific Princess started as the Sea Venture in 1971 for the flagship cruise company. But in 1975, she was sold to Princess Cruises, which had just been acquired by P&O, the famous Peninsular and Oriental Steamship Line. Pacific Princess was 525 feet long and displaced just under 20,000 tons. So, to put that in perspective, she's about half the length of the Queen Mary and about a quarter of her tonnage, or should we say dwarfed by modern day cruise ships. After changing hands a couple of more times, the Princess was under the ownership of a Brazilian company and seized by Italian authorities. Fast forward, she was finally towed for scrap in 2013. Now, You guys also know that I have mad love for collectibles in 1981. There was a series of action figures based on the love boat from Mego and a Canadian company actually released kind of a, uh, a styrene boat that you could put those action figures in. And today's episode, we of course have to mention the guest stars kind of the hallmark of the love boat, the guest star format. In this episode, we've got a who's who of 70s network television. Bonnie Franklin, who, of course, was famous for being on One Day at a Time. Jimmy J.J. Walker from Good Times. Suzanne Summers, who was just seeing her star rise with the premiere of Three's Company only a few months before this episode of Love Boat aired. Meredith Baxter Burney. At the time, she was on Family on ABC, but she is best known to audiences for her portrayal of Elise Keaton on the sitcom Family Ties. An interesting note here, actor Robert Simmons, who portrayed Aubrey Skogstad, will later appear in Star Trek Deep Space Nine as Vedek Porta in the fourth season episode, Ascension.
1: The Enterprise is preparing... Wait... Scratch that. The Pacific Princess is preparing to depart on her next voyage to the Mexican Riviera, and Cruise Director Julie McCoy and ship's purser Gopher Smith are awaiting the arrival of a brand new group of passengers, clipboards in hand. They both observe that Captain Merrill's tubing is a little more irritable than normal, and Julie thinks she knows why. One of the directors of the ship's line, Aubrey Skogstad, will be cruising with his wife. They make their arrival, and Mrs. Skogstad is a lovely woman insulting the crew and bossing them around as if she owned the place. Boarding, or should I say sprinting aboard ship next, is Ginny O'Brien. She's being pursued by a man in an exterminator's van who is, shall we say, dynamite. But we would never say that since that's a catchphrase for an entirely different show. Finding her cabin, she races inside and slams the door behind her to find a startled cabin mate for this voyage, Lorraine Hoffman. Looks like they'll be sharing a room this trip. Lorraine asks Ginny if anything is wrong, and she replies that there was a man after her. Well, Lorraine instantly wants to know if he had a friend. This is going to be a fun cruise. Just then, the door flies open, and the man who has been looking for Jenny shouts, Shazam! And immediately begins to kiss her. It turns out the man in question is Ginny's ex-boyfriend, Ronald. Then an announcement comes over the PA. All visitors have to disembark the ship. Ronald tries to get Jenny to leave with him, and she wants no part of that. He's the thing that she's trying to get away from on this cruise, and she kicks him out. Julie is stopped by a passenger who asks if there's a newsstand on board. Julie says there is, but it doesn't open until 9 a.m. Her name is Sandy Rytel, and she's the fiancé of a United States congressman. Before she ever met him, Sandy posed for some nude pictures back in the day, and they're coming out now because of who her fiancé is. She talks the congressman, Brad, into this cruise to get away from the newsstands, but the ship sells the magazine that she's looking to avoid. Sandy makes a plan to be at the stand when it opens. Julie informs the captain that there's a problem with the Skogstads. Go figure. Seems they were invited to dine to the captain's table, and Mrs. Skogstad would be happy to have dinner there as long as the captain eats someplace else. Doc and Julie observe the captain's table and the fact that the master of the vessel isn't there. Doc theorizes perhaps Stubing decided that discretion is the better part of valor, but Julie's not buying that. She says Doc didn't see the look on his face. He'll be there. You just watch. No sooner does she say that than in walks Captain Stubing, and he heads directly for that table. It goes over just about as well as you'd expect. Mrs. Skogstad takes pot shots at him the whole time, and he leaves when he decides he's finally had enough. Julie thinks he's handled it well, and Gopher says it would take a lot more than that to rattle Captain Steubing, the very same captain who steps outside and screams at the top of his lungs at the nighttime sky. The next morning, finds Sandy asleep in her bed and a knock at the door. It's 10 o'clock, and she's overslept. She wasn't at the newsstand at 9 a.m. to get all the copies of Kitten Magazine. Yeah, that's really the name. She assumes it's her fiancé knocking at the door for an explanation, but it's just Julie. The cruise director went to the newsstand when it opened and got her all the copies on the shelf. Julie asks her why she posed for a centerfold, and Sandy tells her, Well, she was in law school and she needed the money. Oh, right, I almost forgot. The good news is that Julie got all of the magazines left on the newsstand. The bad news, there's three she couldn't get, and they're somewhere on board. Lorraine and Ginny come back from Puerto Vallarta, and much to their surprise, they encounter Ronald, who's boarded the ship in Mexico. He's still trying to get Ginny back, and he drove all the way down to Puerto Vallarta just to do it. He gets really uncomfortable when Ginny says that someday she can't wait to tell their children that he drove all the way down to Mexico to sweep her off her feet. Uh kids, yeah, Ronald is out of there. Doc has something that might help with the captain's upset stomach. Mrs. Skogstad is really getting to him, and Doc just doesn't understand why. It turns out that Stacy Skogstad used to be Stacy Stoobing. say that ten times fast. Merrill was married to her for seventeen years before he was lured away by the sea. Well, this really explains everything. Sandy notices a gentleman sunbathing near the pool, and he's got one of the copies of Kitten Magazine with him. They notice each other, and she looks visibly uncomfortable. Finally, she spills her drink on him and uses the centerfold to wipe it up, making a hasty exit. That's one down, two to go. Ginny is enjoying some coffee when Lorraine comes by and demonstrates her look for going ashore. She insists on taking Ginny with her to have a good time, but Ginny would rather wait on board... For Ronald, of course. She figures that by the time he drives all the way down to Cabo, he'll be so exhausted that she could talk him into anything. Like, say, marriage. Elsewhere, copy number two of Kitten Magazine has been spotted by Sandy. A gentleman smoking a cigarette and leaning against the railing is checking out the centerfold. She takes out a cigarette and asks him for a light, and instead of lighting it for her, he just hands her the lighter which she then uses to light a quarter of the centerfold on fire. She makes a very quick getaway and runs into Julie who tells her that she knows who has the third copy of Kitten, and it's Doc? Sandy beelines it to the doctor's office and starts to rummage through the magazines in the waiting room. Doc interrupts her search and brings her in for an examination, because she's told him she has a cold. She grabs the last centerfold out of the magazine on his desk while pretending to cough, Doc comments that she shouldn't appear to have a cold, but she could be suffering from acute embarrassment, from overexposure. Sandy is mortified, but Doc tells her that she shouldn't be ashamed. You see, Timmy, Doc thinks that if she's going to marry Brad, she needs to start being honest with him. She's afraid to lose him, but he cautions her that she'll have a lot more to lose if she doesn't level with him. The more you know. Ginny asks Lorraine how Cabo was, and she says she had four Tom Collins, three Jack Daniels, and one Paco Martinez. That's not a drink. That's a beach boy at the hotel in town. That's a far cry from Ginny's day, which was spent waiting for Ronald, who didn't show up. Ginny and Lorraine notice a boat speeding toward the cruise ship, and go figure, it's Ronald. He's announcing his love for Ginny for the world to hear, but he's still not ready to commit. Sandy levels with Brad and tells him the truth about her law school days. She shows him the centerfold, and she says that she wouldn't blame him if he never wanted to see her again. He assures her that he wants to see her again, and again, and again as he pulls out his own copy of Kitten magazine. He doesn't care where her photo is. He loves her, and he wants to marry her. She's concerned that it could cost him votes, but he really doesn't care. Ah. the uniting power of nudie mags. Isn't it beautiful? Lorraine and Jenny visit the lounge for a drink to take the edge off, and they went up dancing and partying with men in the lounge and close the place down. The next day, Jenny is nursing a hangover in a deck chair. Jenny asks Lorraine why she woke up with a life preserver in her bed that morning, and it turns out, long story short, that she was actually having fun. Ronald didn't show up at Ensenada, so she guesses he finally gave up but she has no idea that his van broke down just outside of town. It's the final night of the cruise, and Merrill Steubing is in his rightful place as head of the captain's table, and both of the Skogstads are present. Stacy is needling the captain intentionally to try to get a reaction, and he finally leaves when he's just about had enough. Merrill overhears the crew in the main lobby talking about how Stacy is making them all absolutely miserable. He knows he has to set this right. His crew doesn't deserve this treatment. They adjourn to the Lido deck for some liquid therapy, and stooping sets out to find Stacy. He confronts her, and she immediately asks Merrill, "Who do you think you are?" He replies, "I'm the captain." He then proceeds to tell her he hasn't been acting very much like it, but he's actually a darned good one, thanks, and he's going to give her an order now. Go to your room. She threatens to end his career for this, and he's okay with that. She departs for her room, and Aubrey tells Stubing that He's a great captain. Back at the port of Los Angeles, it's time to disembark. Nobody ever seems to have any luggage on this ship, but Lorraine still has a lot of baskets. She and Ginny say goodbye to one another, and Ginny says that, without Lorraine, this cruise would have been a disaster. Ronald appears, and he tells Ginny that he's seen the light and he wants to get married. Except now Ginny is no longer sure. She says that the last couple of nights on the cruise changed her mind completely, and now Ronald seems pretty suspicious of this. Jenny wants the same kind of freedom he wanted now, and he's not loving the prospect. They go home, together, to start over. Brad and Sandy stop by to thank Julie and Doc for all of their help. Doc tells Sandy that it seems his prescription worked. And she says it did, and the next time he sees her in a picture... It'll be a wedding picture. Ah. Merrill apologizes to Stacy for having been so harsh the night before and for what happened to their life 10 years ago. He tells her that she's wonderful and she deserved a better husband than he ever was. Stacy tells him that she couldn't find one important thing wrong with his ship and that he's one hell of a commander. Merrill hopes she's happy with Aubrey and they part on much friendlier terms. She and Aubrey disembark the ship as Captain Steubing is called to the bridge.
0: Bill, nice job there. Um, There is a lot of plot for such a light, fluffy show. So really, you know, hats off to you for for sticking with it. Thank you so much. Plot recap. Good job. Uh, so here we get to pick the show apart. Dan, uh, I'm going to start with you. You know, initial impressions. What do we think? What are we getting out of this? Uh,
2: first of all, whenever we talk plot for an episode of Love Boat, I just have to laugh. But <laughs> but you're right. There are several yeah. plots, and and when you're going back and watching these things, you're like, wow, there really were storylines to these episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, one of the first things that I would probably say is uh, it's really amazing to me watching these 30 years 40 years later how bad some of this acting really was but we love it to death it's yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's cemented in our brains as what we used to watch back in the day when we were younger um
0: and it is kind of an interesting thing because you you're sort of you've got three writers who are essentially writing three 15-minute one-act plays mm-hmm and, and you've got to get across a lot of information in that time. So it's, it, it's a little, you know, it's shorter than a regular sitcom, even that they've got to get across that information. So they tend to just play as broadly as they can. So every character is an archetype. Every character is an extreme, you know, and you they've to got to wonder, go way over the top.
2: When they were filming this, did they film one entire storyline altogether? together? And then do the second one and then the third one. So they were all separate pieces and then meld them into the episode. Or did they do it in a kind of flow that we actually see? I kind of think that would be hard to do, but it's a it's it's a question that I that came up in my mind. It, it
0: seems like that would be the only way to do it. If you've got, you know, a Suzanne Summers or or let's say a Jimmy JJ Walker. If you've got a Jimmy JJ Walker, then what you want to do is you want to get him on set for like two days. Yep. And then do the location shooting, maybe a half day or an extra day after that, and then just move on. You know, <laughs> and right. if you can get if you can get that one hour episode down to about a six day shooting schedule, then you're doing really well. well That's exactly what you want,
1: especially you know? if you consider that at the time Jimmy Walker was one of the biggest sitcom stars on the planet on Good Times, mm-hmm. right? You yeah, know? and he yeah. is. He he cannot be anything other than Jimmy Walker even in this episode is Ronald. <laughs> you know, especially when he's talking to Gopher at the beginning of the episode about a man of your stature and he's making mm-hmm. the the hand gesture and everything. I'm like, oh yeah, that's JJ Evans.
2: Yeah. Well and how about that?
0: Uh essentially buttering someone up to get another person's room number on board a ship.
1: He's I'm seen. sorry, but
0: yeah, yeah. Gopher
1: would be fired. On the spot. Just on the spot. There, um, there's no security at all in the 1970s. I'm learning this now. No, I, uh, I didn't realize it growing up, but you can do anything anywhere, and society just thinks it's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of great because if you have a ship that has maybe like eight passengers on it, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you only need a crew of about four. Uh, which is kind of what we see here every now and then you throw an extra in the background. Like the, the guy who's so cool laying by the pool and reading the not playboy magazine. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By the way, speaking of Jimmy JJ Walker, I believe that he was contractually obligated to yell every line that he has.
1: (laughs) I, uh, it's funny because when he bursts on to the scene in this episode, he truly does do that. Mm -hmm. You're right. He has one volume from start to finish. And then he engages in probably in every single possible stereotype that existed for African Americans at that point in our nation's history. Mm -hmm. That's painful. Yes. It's incredibly (laughs) painful.
2: What I find interesting to that is as I was watching this, I was saying to myself, it is really interesting to me how things have gone completely 180 degrees from the years when this came out when it comes to censorship. Uh, mm. I mean, during the time that Love Boat was on, you couldn't. T- you, there was no sex, there was no mm. swearing, but oh my God, the political incorrectness that took place. <laughs> uh, and right. y- you could insinuate sex, but skin was never seen. Um, but these days, right. you have all kinds of sex, you have all kinds of swearing, they're really pushing the line, but one wrong word regarding heritage or religion, sexual orientation, your show is going to get canceled and your career is going to be over. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, it was very interesting. I, I was thinking about, um, boy, there was the, uh, the the superhero special that ran in the late 1970s. So about the same time, um, it was produced by, I want to say it was Hanna-Barbera, but you, you basically had like the superhero roast. And you had uh, Adam West and Burt Ward there as Batman and Robin. And then, then you had Ghetto Man. Do you guys remember this at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very vaguely. You had ghetto Man, Yeah. And he, it's just a, an African-American actor comes out in a, in a superhero costume, and they just does this terrible racist monologue. And, and you just sort of sit there and cringe and think, why did anyone ever find this funny?
1: I, you know? I, I can't even imagine. It's, it's funny you mentioned it, because I remember watching that vaguely. And I remember my parents throwing each other looks like, is this for real? <laughs>
0: right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is very interesting what you can get away with and, and you can't get away with that, that we see here. I, I think we've even come back to some of that in our wrap up on this episode.
2: Um, what else?
0: What else do we like here? I have a question
2: as a, as a young, as a young teenager watching it back then and even as a much older person today, um, did Suzanne Summers ever, to your recollection, ever wear a bra on TV? Ooh, <laughs> that's
0: <laughs> yeah. That is a good question. That is a very good question. I, I, know, I just throwing know. it out
2: there, you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It should probably be investigated further. I'm, so
1: yeah, I'm look willing to that bet, and
0: Let us know what you what you come up with.
1: I'm willing to bet that perhaps she didn't. Although I will say, it is really kind of strange to me that we had an episode of the Love Boat where there's a story about a centerfold and it was Meredith Baxter Bernie. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And not Suzanne Summers, And not yeah. Suzanne Somers. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, you do have to wonder about that. I mean, uh, were there agents involved saying, well, this is a kind of image that we want this actress to have or that kind of thing. Um, but, but I do think that when you see a young Meredith Baxter Bernie, um, she kind of had a little more of that girl next door, fresh faced, you know, very little makeup, that kind of look that you see a lot in Playboy in the mid seventies. And I mm. think that Suzanne Summers uh, is a little more like the sort of like a glammed up kind of Vegas look, almost. Right. You know, now of course she was wildly popular, and her her poster was on you know every teenager's wall at that time. But I can. It's strange. Like I, I think it doesn't make sense the way that you think it doesn't make sense. But at the same time, I can kind of get why somebody would look at those two and go, "Huh, let's play around with the casting here. Maybe we can believe Suzanne Summers as the sort of free and easy single on board before we can believe Meredith Baxter as the uh, the centerfold who is kind of wholesome and pure and maybe has some questions about her decisions." You know,
2: Yeah, I would have to agree with that, Bill. I think one of the things that I thought about when watching this is this This is later in her life and she's talking about when she's younger and it kind of fits the storyline because she's trying to hide something from her past. But at the same time, I would have liked it if they had changed the story a little bit so that maybe it was something, if Suzanne Summers had been chosen to be the centerfold, could have been something that was more previous in her life. The reason I, I, I bring this up is, I'm going to say it right up front. I don't like Bonnie Franklin. I've never liked Bonnie Franklin. I think she's repulsive. <laughs> I never liked her on one day at a time. She probably <laughs> smells like feet. But <laughs> with that being said, I think that for casting purposes, if I look at this now, I think Suzanne Summers would have been perfect to play the centerfold Sandy. And Meredith Baxter Bernie, I could envision being Captain Steubing's ex-wife, Stacy. And then maybe bring another 1970s sex symbol in to play Lorraine, maybe Farrah Fawcett or Catherine Bach uh, mm. or Jacqueline Smith from Charlie's Angels. Um, like I said, I can understand the storyline is about this older woman, but mix it up a little bit. And for whatever reason, just get Bonnie Franklin off the ship and I'm I'm thumbs up for it. It's,
1: it's a shame <laughs> See, because I, Bonnie Franklin has always said nice things about you, Dale. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I remember so very distinctly uh, about Bonnie Franklin in um, One Day at a Time, that it was a show that I uh, I went out of my way to ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, just really, uh, that show was wildly popular as well. Uh, you, you sort of know all the stories about Mackenzie Phillips now. And, of course, we just lost uh, Pat Harrington not that long ago. Right. Right. Um, right. But uh yeah, that, that was a show that I just could never get into. And, and maybe, maybe you've hit on why maybe it was just Bonnie Franklin.
1: Although yeah. I have to say that I had a hard time taking Bonnie Franklin seriously as, you know, this woman who is a total witch. And I say mm-hmm. that because I think that her performance as Ann Romano on one day at a time kind of colors that. And I think the best part of her appearance in this episode is the last 30 seconds when all of a sudden she becomes human. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, <laughs> it's interesting. That's an interesting take bill because I was opposite and I don't know if it's because like you, John, I was not, I I didn't watch one day at a time. I don't remember sitting down to watch it, but when I did, it never really, I never really liked it that much. And I always remember her and that kind of glaring squinty eyed, face that she mm-hmm. was stooping during this entire episode until the end. Maybe it's just because I haven't watched one day at a time in, in so many years, but it just, it, she didn't, she didn't rub me the right way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, nor, nor Captain Steubing. So <laughs> yeah. It's <yeah. laughs> going on there. Yeah. 17 years. So
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have to say though, that, you know, from watching this, I, I really, I, I gained new appreciation for Captain Steubing. Uh, and Gavin McCloud, I think it's perfect casting. He's he's a good guy. He cares about his crew. He's not insane like Captain Kirk or boring like Captain Picard, you know, <laughs> so he, he doesn't fall into the extremes on on either end there. He's a nice guy who knows how to take command when he has to. And I have to say that if I could go back in time and trade careers with anybody, I think Gavin McLeod might be the guy. I think he has my dream career. Wow. So get this, he got paid to act on a cruise ship for 10 years. So 10 years (laughs) is is longer than practically any other show, right? To have that kind of tenure on TV and then basically never retire because he's like the goodwill ambassador for Princess Cruises. So now in his 80s, he just gets to travel the world on Princess and say like, yeah, I was the captain on the love boat.
1: That's that. I want that to be my job. It sounds like we have to get you a, a casting call for Love Boat Deep Sea 9. <laughs> yeah, work on that, please. I have to say that this is kind of the first show where Gavin McLeod gets to be at the top of the call sheet. You know, because mm-hmm. on Mary Tyler Moore, he was the third or fourth banana. On Mikhail's Navy, he was maybe the fourth or fifth banana. Yep. And he really gets a chance to shine here. He There are times when Captain Steubing seems to be strong enough to lead this cast in this episode, and there are other times where he really seems kind of passive. And I can imagine that since the series ran as long as it did, that we'll find some consistency in this character. But I think that in at least two of these vignettes for want of a better word there are kind of portrayals of Stubing that are a little all over the map
2: yeah
0: yeah but no the, the, this is maybe here in the first episode we've hit peak Stubing.
2: yeah <laughs> you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have to see we'll have to see what else we get in the 10 years to come
2: it's uh it's funny john you mentioned um how Stubing isn't kirk and isn't picard and i actually had a start thought also while watching the show and that's hmm. um we have all the different all the different members of the crew and it kind of reminds me of some of the issues that the original series used to have um and then all of the other spinoffs that there's a lot of cast members on the show and at times it feels like many of them really don't have anything to do uh hailing frequencies open i mean it just yeah it's, it's unfortunate now the doctor for example the doctor he that guy just falls right into whatever role he plays. And he, he <laughs> W kind of guy. He likes those big, beautiful women, as he said. Yes, yes, he does. He, his, his character and the way that he portrays it flows perfectly, um, which I thought was good. I hope that in the other episodes that we're going to talk about in future podcasts that we get to focus on specific characters more than Captain Steubing. That makes sense. You, you really,
0: yeah. Well, I guess you have to ask yourself how much about Gopher you really want to know. <laughs> now, I, I think Julie.
1: There's probably a lot that I want to know about Julie. Well, I
0: think there's th- probably less of you to know about Gopher.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that America wants to know a lot about Julie because let's face it, Lauren Twos kind of became an actual girl next door because of this show.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's pretty great. She's uh, she's very perky incredibly very very perky in this episode
1: is it is it wrong that i keep expecting bernie capel to start talking like siegfried in every scene that he's in
2: (laughs) no um no okay no that reminds me did uh um uh who's who's the guy who played uh maxwell smart don um don adams oh don Don adams Adams. did he ever guest star on love boat that would have been awesome I'm so, well. He was an actor who was
0: alive in the 70s. Yeah. So I'm almost <laughs> certain that uh, that he did. Yeah,
2: I'd say there's a very high probability that he did. We'd have to we'll check get our that statistician out. to look into that. I, I
0: thought, think some of the people. Well, you know, the later you get in the series, you have people like uh, Florence Henderson. I believe she holds a record. She was on ten times. She actually, wow. I believe, she, beat she beats Charo. I think wow. she beats Charo, huh. or maybe they're tied. But you know, they're they're awfully close.
1: Well, you know. and, and in the next episode, Dan, you mentioned Jacqueline Smith earlier. I don't want to spoil the timeline. I know we're not supposed to jump outside the stream, but you get Jacqueline Smith in episode two, my friend.
2: Oh, I saw the coming attraction when I was watching
1: uh, the video I was watching. I know. Can I, <laughs> I, I have to say that I forgot that this show had a laugh track until oh. I started watching it for, for this podcast. Hmm. And it was very distracting at times.
0: Oh, it's, it's definitely a product of its time. You don't really hear that anymore. I, I think maybe maybe if you did a Blu-ray special edition, you could remix it and just remove the, uh, the laugh track. Maybe that would be the thing to do.
2: I was actually going to say, do you think that the laugh track works now? I believe on Big Bang Theory they still have it. Um, but it seems mm. to work more nowadays because it's not as in your face as it is here and just kind of thrown in it odd places like it was in this first episode
0: yeah well, well sometimes you just have to know when to laugh oh that's true you, you have to have somebody tell
2: you when to right. laugh. right i'm trying to work on my sense of humor so <laughs> good yeah so we should laugh now is what you're yes
1: saying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> speaking of funny yeah you know what i thought was very funny watching this is is there a reason why people 40 years ago couldn't make out right <laughs> tight lip barely moving oh yeah that's hot Mm-mm-mm. and and right. the perfect example is the couple that start making out at the pool when captain Stuving goes to scream and oh. and then they fall in the pool just it's just like wow that that's not right
0: <laughs> that that's some bad making out um and you know who i really actually felt bad for in this episode i i think i i felt the worst for the dinner guests at the captain's table two times. We have a, a shot at the captain's table and there's just some people hanging out and they're just there to have a nice meal and meet the captain. But no, there's Bonnie Franklin and, and she ruins that evening for those people. And captain Stubing didn't even have the wherewithal to say, Hey, you can ruin my night, but don't ruin their night. Mm-hmm. You know? Well-
1: And that's kind of what surprised me about Captain Steubing, because, you know, here he is, master of this vessel. He chose the sea instead of, you know, Bonnie Franklin. This ship is his calling, and he's just sitting there taking it endlessly until he gets up and leaves. And I'm like, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right.
2: Back then, you probably could have hit her. (laughs) 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 Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. No. Come on. No. See, my sense of humor is back. Okay. (laughs) Sure.
1: uh, Thank goodness we have a laugh track. Right. I remember watching this episode as a kid, and I have to say, I still say, shazam, the same way that Jimmy (laughs) Walker does in this episode, because of this episode. Hmm. So it has made a lasting mark on me, uh, and I don't know whether that's good or bad. You all can be the judge, I suppose.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, we'll just have to see the next time you enter a room and and yell "Shazam!" Hey, um, I've got a couple of notes about the ports that they go to in this episode. Yeah, um, cool. I, I've had the good fortune of going to all of those and on cruises, no less. So, um, Cabo San Lucas, very nice. Um, it's very built up. I mean, like it's clearly designed with tourism in mind. You know, the the ships pull up and then the tenders take you in. But it's just all built for tourism right there. Um, Easy to get around. Actually, some beautiful scenery. If you take a a boat tour there uh, right in the harbor area, the the rocks are incredible. And uh, there's some decent snorkeling around there. So you can see why Cabo is built up as a tourist destination. Um, Ensenada is, I think the word is terrible. Um, and, and I'm sorry if I offend the uh, Ensenadans in our audience today, uh, but it, it was kind of bad. And, and seriously, if you end up in Ensenada without a plan, then you have made a mistake. Um, so make sure that if you do end up in Ensenada, you have hired a guide and a good one. Don't just get off the boat and just say like, hey, can you take me someplace in your taxi? Don't do that. Um, although I do have to admit that I had the best taco I've ever eaten just outside of Ensenada, uh, took a tour out to la bufadora which is the the blowhole um no jokes please and uh, you go out to this and there's a little taco stand there and it is incredible yeah, absolutely fantastic um and then they do mention puerto vallarta we, do, we don't actually spend any time there and i was shocked to see that there are actually scenes that were shot on the real cruise ship in those areas So most of the time we're on set, most of the time, clearly we're in a studio, but there are a few shots that are actually on a ship and you actually have daylight rather than studio light. I I was, I I had no idea. I did not expect that in this episode.
1: I think that the one thing I took away from Puerto Vallarta is that they have baskets Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the best baskets are always in Puerto Vallarta. So did you see any baskets in your travels?
0: Not a damn one. No, no. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Get some pictures up on the website damn oh, we got had a lot of tacos
0: though a lot of tacos a lot of
1: tacos
2: <laughs> it's amazing it how time neat, changes right. things
0: yeah yeah yeah
2: john you mentioned it just a second ago um mm-hmm. the scenery and when they shot actual scenes in in cabo the one that made that stood out to me is the scene where suzanne summers was standing on the uh on the deck and talking about what she had to drink and there was a back uh, was it a backdrop or was that an actual was that re- it looked like a backdrop to me but i couldn't really tell Yeah, that mountains behind it.
0: uh, Well, well, that is what Cabo looks like. And that Um, particular shot for a moment there, I thought it might have been a a projection. But the scenes before that, um, there's a scene where Isaac comes up and he pours coffee for Jenny. She talks about how she's going to stay on board that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure a couple of scenes after that were actually on a ship that even if it wasn't out at sea, it was on the water um, because the, the lighting, the actual depth that you had behind it, those actually looked like real shots were taken on a cruise ship. Gotcha. So um, yeah. Yeah. Now they could have just been parked here at long beach and could have shot them there. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I was actually surprised. Um, and, uh, and let's talk about those. Well, actually, let's talk about Cabo real quick. As you mentioned that scene where Suzanne Summer comes back on board and she talks about what she drank. And, and I'm sorry. No, <laughs> just no. Even OK, if if I were hanging out with a 1977 era Suzanne Summers, and, and believe me, you couldn't stop me if you tried. Um, I would just have to say no, stop, because you cannot have that much alcohol. Um, I believe her hookup. With uh, the Beach Boy, before I believe what she drank, it's still daylight out, which means she would have had to have started very early, and she would be dead, <laughs> uh. <laughs> or at the very least, she would not be nearly as perky as she is in that scene, uh, because she seems very together.
1: Well, and and Ginny has a, a double bourbon and is plowed under the next day on a deck right. chair up up on the Lido deck. You know, yeah, she's she's got the hangover to of all hangovers. So yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Clearly, Jenny needs to get out more.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did like the old fashioned ice bag though. That would that really that really set the tone for that scene. <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, I haven't seen one of those since nineteen seventy seven. To be honest, with you. <laughs>
1: right, right. I, I think one of the things I find really interesting, and since we were talking about Suzanne Somers' character, is that we've got some really opposite storylines on how they handle women in society. Oh, man. You've got Suzanne Somers extolling the virtues of what it's like to be carefree and having fun and hookups with hotel boys and day drinking. And in the other two, you've got Meredith Baxter-Burney, who's ashamed of having taken pictures that are, quote-unquote, indecent. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Jenny, who who wants nothing more in the world to be married, but then she doesn't want to get married. So you've kind of got the seventies stereotypes and then the seventies new woman stereotype sort of competing against each other. And I found that really fascinating.
0: Yeah. The sexual politics here are Pretty incredible. So let, let's let put a little context around this, right? So they actually reference Jimmy Carter's Playboy interview from November 1976. Mm. So that issue would have been out at the end of September. So you're leading into the presidential election. Of 1976, pretty incredible, and and that was a uh, a watershed moment for journalism and for what uh, uh, Carter was saying and how that kind of affected people that were voting for him, and and he, he was sort of pilloried for his statements in Playboy, but you go back and you read it and go like, oh, okay, well this guy is just sort of speaking his truth you know, but that was a big deal at that time. And they shot this episode of love boat in December of 1976. So it it really is a sort of rip from the headlines, right? Fast forward a couple of years, ABC prime time aired playboys, roller disco and pajama party. (laughs) Okay. That was right around the time of the 25th anniversary of the magazine. So You've got I, I, this is sort of the sexual revolution, but played out on national TV. And you've got that really old kind of traditional where you've got the character who's just concerned about getting married. That's all they care about. And then you've got this other character who is concerned about having a good time and, and saying, I'm going to be nothing but myself. We love a good scandal. And it's not out of the question today that the press would have a field day with a politician's wife who posed nude. Mm-hmm. Um, my take is, so what? I, in 2016, we should be over this 40 years later, but we're not. You know, um, But it, it is, yeah, that these two storylines happen to occupy the same space and present very different views of roles for women i don't know maybe this is another podcast we could do that you could just pick apart these two and really try to figure out what the writer is trying to say but it it is very interesting
2: it is um i have two two comments on that john Mm -hmm. first of all is is doc seemed to have your take on the whole centerfold thing he was like you're ashamed of this why what's the problem i thought that was that was a a good moment for what we know his character to be like. And, and it's like what we think now. Who cares? It's not a big deal. Whatever. Yeah. The other yeah. thing is do you know if the Playboy roller disco and pajama party is available on DVD and it's <laughs> they have a behind the scenes?
0: Man, I really hope so. I really hope so. Um, you know, I, I will say, Playboy did a great job of releasing like Playboy After Dark. Those are fabulous DVD sets. But there's nothing quite like the Roller Disco and Pajama Party. <laughs> I still so, remember seeing that. Yeah, do try to find it. it it's um, <laughs> it's pretty great. You know, at, at that time, like I said, 25th anniversary. That that was a time that they they were really at the peak of their sort of. Um, Cultural dominance. Mm-hmm. You know, the the magazine itself had been around for twenty five years, but it wasn't just the magazine; it was also the clubs and the TV specials and the consumer products and all this other stuff. So that was way more of a name than it was before, and certainly than it is now. So um, I, I thought it was interesting that 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 was a prominent piece of the storyline, and I know that certainly for Hugh Hefner. Um, you know, he was always concerned that the, the women in his magazines were not more prominent celebrities than they were. You know, so, of course, they always sort of took advantage of that when you had somebody who became famous later and then they'd rerun the pictures. Oh, look, this person oh, right. posed for Playboy. But, mm-hmm. you know, what, what they had hoped would happen is that every time they ran a Playmate of the Month or certainly a Playmate of the Year, that that person would go on and become more famous on their own. that they would, you know, be great actors or or whatever. And, you know, it it played out a few times like that, but but not as often as they had hoped.
1: It's interesting. You know, we talk about Doc's reaction to the photos. If you skip back a little bit and talk about Julie's reaction to the photos, she comes to Sandy's cabin and knocks (laughs) on the door with a stack of kitten magazines in her hand and then says, well, you know, so if you don't mind my asking very sheepishly, Mm -hmm. Why, um, did you, and then her sentence trails off as if she's afraid to say, pose for nude photos. And I I thought that that was very interesting. So you have this, this woman in Sandy who did something because, you know, the, the classic, you know, I was young, I needed the money. And then you have Julie coming in as this sort of all American doe eyed, you know, girl next door saying, well, what, why did you do that? Sandy, that was kind of silly. And I yeah. I thought it was kind of a weird dichotomy between the two reactions. And they both gave her a, you see Timmy moment.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Boy, that was a, you see Timmy moment, like wasn't that. it?
1: Yeah. They were oh, dropping wow. those right and left. Yeah. But you know, it is
0: unfortunate that, that they had to play it off in such a way of still making that character a victim saying, well, I had to, because I didn't have money and I had to do mm-hmm. this. And I, instead of, what I would hope to see, which is, uh, yeah, I did that because I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> and, end of story. Right. <laughs> you know, um, so we, we were still playing that, you know, in the late 70s when, when it should have been freer. It should have been more acceptable. But we're still playing that well. But we, we have to give her an excuse for having agency with her own body. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um let's move on to some uh some lighter topics here. The sets. Oh. <laughs> They're fantastic. They're beautiful. They so good. Oh man, I did not remember how good it was. Um they built exactly what they needed, no more no less, but they did it really well. Um I was shocked to see like I said the location shots. Uh just a, a few shots on a real ship. But the sets are incredible. They're small, but it's okay because it was a small ship anyway, about 600 passengers, maybe fewer, depending on you know how capacity is sold. Uh, a note about the pool, by the way. All right, so you mentioned the pool earlier where the couple is making out and then splash into the pool when the captain yep. yells. So there's not enough room on a soundstage to actually dig out a pool, but it doesn't work that way. So they would build up an area maybe about two feet That's why the the walls are very high. Now, they're very high on a cruise ship anyway because you're trying to avoid water splashing out onto the deck. Um, But they would build that up, put maybe like two feet of water in there and then dye it to make it look deeper. Wow. And if you had a shallow end and a a deeper end, they would just dye the deeper end and (laughs) get the shot and then move on. So the people who are swimming are doing that in a very shallow space. It's like they're in a bathtub. And there's one shot where a guy sort of jumps in, but not really. He's sort of sitting on the edge. And that's actually covered by an actor walking in front.
1: I didn't so if you go back that. and you watch it, that.
0: yeah, oh. yeah, you see. Certainly no diving. Do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> do not do that at all.
1: <laughs> I have to say that, you know, on our Facebook page, we have a photo of the actual Lido deck set and the oh, actual yes. Lido deck from the Pacific Princess. And it's amazing how close it is. It's a smaller scale on the on the soundstage, right. but it's like they recreated it and spent a bunch of money to do so. And it the sets look beautiful.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, it's amazing. It's They're really
1: good. incredible.
2: It's also good to. I mean, I've I've kind of gone on back to this topic a couple of times during the podcast. Is mm-hmm. looking at the at the decorations for back in the seventies. Wow, I mean the sets look great, but <laughs> boy, did we have problems with decorations back then. I think <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, the 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 uh, the bar where they were all dancing that night, where they kind of went crazy and had the drinks. Just right. looking at the lamps and the and the the rugs and stuff like that, it's
1: like, whoo. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was high class decoration too. Exactly. That was making yeah. you feel like you were spending some money.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: So here we are, guys, time to wrap up a momentous occasion, our first episode of Lido Deck, a Love Boat podcast. And uh, of course, we've gotten to that point where we have to figure out what it all means, what we learned, and does the episode hold up? So um, guys, I, Dan, I'm going to start with you. What did you learn today? What are the takeaways from today's episode?
2: Um, that I wish that I was in my 20s back in the 70s. <laughs> mm. <laughs> You're here, here. <laughs> no, very freestyle back then i think um but uh looking back what i learned is that the 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 thing that really stood out for me which i mentioned right off the bat is looking at what you could and couldn't get away with back then as opposed to what you can and cannot get away with today is such a difference it's it really is mind blowing for me that it can be that different over this period of time that we're talking about
0: yeah yeah, I have to agree with you there for sure. Um, yeah, I, I've always thought that, you know, if I had been born, say, 30 or 40 years before I was born, I, I would like to think that I could have spent my life as a man of leisure, <laughs> sailing the seas, um, you know, on, on a nice ocean liner somewhere, and uh, and maybe also being a spy. Uh, but, you know, it, who, who knows? Who knows what my alternate past would have held. Uh, Bill, what about you? Any uh, any takeaways, any important messages here?
1: I, I think as far as takeaways go, I, I, I think this episode is very emblematic of the 1970s as a whole. You have that sort of those competing visions in society of, you know, let's stay where we are or let's progress past the disco era, for example, and with regard to social attitudes. And we kind of get – a composite of that, all in this 1977 hour of television. The show's called The Love Boat, but for this episode, they may as well call it The Compromise Boat, since nobody really <laughs> falls in love. <laughs> so, Marilyn and Stacy reach a mutual understanding and respect at the end. Mm-hmm. Ginny and Ronald agree to give things another try now that Ginny has kind of dialed back her expectations.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: Sandy and Brad agree to face whatever the fallout of her pictures are together. So, I mean, regardless of of what that all entails, it's it's the first episode, so I'm betting there's a whole lot more love on the horizon. I can't mm-hmm. channel Ernie Anderson all that well, so that's as good as it got. <laughs> it's a it's a decent pilot episode, but I, I don't know that it holds up over time given the societal implications. Hey yeah.
2: Bill. Uh, I got to say, I think there was one relationship that was kindled in this episode. Which one's that? I think Aubrey Skogstad really likes Captain Steuben the way he <laughs> talked, and the only time of the episode was mm. to him. <laughs>
1: yeah. He, he kind of reminded me a little of uh, at the end of, uh, of Harry Mudd with the robots, you know, shut up, Stella. <laughs> um, I, it's, uh, I think that the best we could do in this episode instead of love is, hey, you're not so bad after all. Into yeah. the vignettes. That's kind right. of the way it struck me.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, good for Brad being uh, a progressive fellow that he is. I, I hope it works out for him in his political career. Um who knows what, what that may hold if you were to read the follow up novel to this episode. Uh I'll tell you the other thing that was kindled in this is uh, my appreciation for Julie. Just gotta go back to that again. Uh <laughs> Julie, she's she's fantastic. She is. Yeah. I'll tell you, uh, my my takeaways very similar to yours actually. Um, you have to talk about expectations before you get into a relationship. All all that sort of nitty gritty detail, marriage, kids, living arrangements, um, choices for breakfast, meats, you know, those things are important. And you've got to work that out before you actually say, move in together and decide that's what your life will be um also you can't talk someone into a marriage or a relationship jenny jenny's a little too anxious and really does think that she can sort of fix and control ronald and i'm sorry but ronald is not that guy
2: no no he's not so yeah Um, but i think
0: the really important thing here is that uh whatever you do or whatever you did do in the past you have to own it you know, um, uh, Dan, you mentioned it. Uh, the doctor likes large women. He owns it. He owns that fact, <laughs> yep. you know, uh, whether it's getting married or staying single or cohabitating, whether it's posing in a magazine or having a career at sea rather than a marriage to a, uh, a horrible, horrible woman, own it, own it, own what is valuable to yourself. Um, Like I said, I'm still waiting for the day when a person who posed nude for a magazine doesn't have to go through a rehearsed monologue of excuses when asked about it, you know, because they they should just be able to own it and say, yep, yep, that's, that's me on page, whatever, get over it. You know, Um, Captain Subing has a a line. No, I'm sorry. It's not Captain Subing. It's the doc. If you're going to marry the guy, you better start being honest with him or to put it another way to put it uh, uh, kind of flip it around a little bit you really have no business being with the people who don't or can't accept who you are. Right. So good lesson for her to learn. Um, So we've talked about all these lessons talking about the episode itself. uh, Bill, I think you've already said what doesn't hold up about the episode. Is is that a consensus here? How how do we feel about the episode holding up?
1: I I don't think so, Dan.
2: Well, I, I, I might be taking it a little bit lighter, but it, it holds up in my expectations of what I expected when I decided we were going to go back when we decided we were going to go back and watch these Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of entertainment, it holds up because it's entertaining, entertaining. Um, But there are, there are a lot of uh, you know, there's weak acting uh, there's We talked about the unbelievable, storylines in terms of of the different way that the females in these stories are are portrayed and are portraying things. Um, so it kind of seemed like it was jumping around a little bit, but that could be because it was three different stories by three different writers and three different directors. Um, so I would say on a novice level, it does hold up for me, but on an overall level, it does not. If that makes any sense whatsoever. What's yeah. About?
0: no I, I think I, I think I agree with you for, for me, the answer is no, but," and there are a lot of "buts when when I say no um, it, it doesn't hold up because it does feel dated. The acting feels forced in many moments and and the the kind of choppiness of the the writing and directing style doesn't necessarily hold up but um there's something that is pretty great about an hour long comedy shot on film. Mm. um that is done in a non-ironic way
2: yeah
0: you know that's really rare these days because while the characters are making jokes and they're joking with each other it's not like the joke is on the audience and a lot of what passes for comedy today is just sort of like a wink at the audience to say well we're in on this aren't we clever um so there's something really refreshing about seeing a show like this. And as far as a show sort of living up to its own expectations and setting the tone for what is to come, it really does live up to what it's trying to do. Um, so in that respect, it is it is a groundbreaking piece of television. Um, and I think it holds up as a pilot for what is about to come so uh but yeah it, is it the greatest episode of tv ever no
2: <laughs> i think we <laughs> sort of agree on that i think i'm going to be putting the playboy roller derby whatever the heck it was back up ahead of that i think a little bit <laughs> <laughs> all right <A> little bit. <laughs> once i see it yeah there you go yeah.
0: there you go Lido deck a love boat podcast is produced by stage nine amalgamated media executive producer alan smithy For more great discussion, visit trekgeeks.com
1: and missionlogpodcast.com. Next week, we'll take a look at A Tasteful Affair, O'Dale, and the main event.
2: Hey, John, before we get started again, i got to say, when, when we come out and visit you in L.A., which we will have to do at some point. Yes. In our life, A, a we're going to the Tonga go. Hut.
0: I was just yeah. going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. do, you oh,
1: know, yeah. do you know how hard it was for me to not make a joke about Dan being a drooling bastard? <laughs> <laughs> I exercise the kind of self-restraint that that generations of my family will be proud of, and I don't even have kids. <laughs> <laughs> You're a – wow. Yeah,
0: that's man. I'm a credit to that that uniform. You are, you are.